Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's been a brutal seven months, but for the English, they are beginning to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Or so it appears, because as the joke goes, the light at the end of the tunnel could be an oncoming train. The Boers are falling back across a broad front to the east in Natal. General Redvers Buller finally has found his military mojo and is approaching the Boer lines across the Biggersberg to the north of Ladysmith. This is where the high felt or the high plains of South Africa lie, and between him and the plains are Boers, ensconced in three main passes. In the centre and about to cross the Vaal River is Lord Roberts, with his massive army of around 50,000 marching steadily towards Pretoria, and in the west, Lord Methuen's unit under Mahon is moving up towards Mafeking, and Plumer is north of the same town. They plan to join up there with the Canadians, who approached via Beira in Portuguese East Africa. Throughout South Africa, the British plan is finally falling into place. It has taken these months to subdue the Boers, and now for the first time in the conflict, the British Empire appears just that. If you can cast your mind back to October 1899, when the Anglo-Boer War burst into the global consciousness, the British really believed they'd crush these insolent burghers in the space of a few weeks. Many ships laden with wounded show just how fallacious that expectation really was. Wars against a people who know how their land works how the geography looks, how the weather is, both your friend and enemy, have an advantage over an enemy with the latest technology, but little local knowledge. Think about Napoleon in Russia, then Hitler later. Think about Russia in Afghanistan in 1979, then the Americans. Invading armies are often more powerful and better resourced than those whom they invade, winning skirmishes and battles, but eventually they lose the war. On the 10th of May 1900, the Canadians had finally joined Colonel Plumer at his camp, Sefatili, after a cyclist had been sent to request that they hurry their march. The Canadians had travelled in a most circuitous route, as we've heard previously, from Cape Town through the Port of Barra, then westwards through Marandellas and Rhodesia, swinging south to Bulawayo, and finally arriving at Plumer's camp to the north of Mafeking. Urgency, though, was the watchword. On the same day the Canadians arrived, Plumer's small northern force of 700 men left the Sepetili stronghold to meet Colonel Mahon's flying column, which had been marching northwards. These two forces met at the town of Yan Masibi, around 50 kilometers away, with the hard-pressed Canadians towing their heavy artillery, ready for the next clash. Joining Plumer were the British South African Police, or BSAP, the Queensland Mounted Infantry, who escorted the Canadian guns, five squadrons of the Rhodesian Regiment, one troop of Southern Rhodesian Volunteers, four breech-loading 12-pounder guns, three 2.5-pounders, and one 12-pounder Maxim. By marching most of the night, Plumer had reached Mahon's column in the early hours of the 15th of May. So... The next morning on the 16th, this force left for Mafeking, along with 2,000 under Mahon. The BSAP formed the advance guard with Mahon's southern column on the left and Bloomer's northern column on the right of the Malopa River, and they used that river as the cartographical feature to lead them into Mafeking. Ironically, they were using the same route into the besieged town that Elof had used the previous week when his attempt at rushing the town had failed and he had been forced to surrender. Mafeking was now a tantalizing 30 kilometers to the west of Mahon's column. 
During the march, the Canadian guns were the northern column's most important weaponry, and as they followed the winding river westwards, they crossed open felt unopposed all the way to Sarni Station, around 15 kilometres from Mafeking. There, they stopped for lunch, and at that point, the Boers were spotted on the ridge overlooking the small siding. A few minutes later, the Boers opened fire with their artillery. The Canadians manhandled their guns into a melee field, or cornfield, while the gunners attempted to locate the Boer guns, but these were expertly hidden behind rocks, trees, and a farmhouse. Finally, the Canadians spotted three Boer guns in these separate locations. It took 45 minutes of ranging fire before the Canadians managed to land a shell close enough to the Boer guns that they began to withdraw. By late afternoon, this little battle ended. The Canadians had fired 106 rounds and in so doing had actually cleared the route to Mafeking, although none of the British realised it yet. Still unaware of the extent of his victory, Mahon decided to water his horses and mules. Then he'd rise at 4am and continue the march. As the men were filling their ammunition wagons, scouts found that the road through to Mafeking was clear and Mahan immediately issued the command to move at midnight. Just as an interesting aside, Mahan had actually dispatched a pigeon to Baden-Powell, alerting him to the imminent arrival of the relief column, but the pigeon never made it. Residents in the town were shooting every bird they could find for the pot, so who knows, maybe someone did actually shoot the messenger. The Boers continued to hover ominously on the town's outskirts, hoping to close the breach and trap Mahon inside, but he was aware of this possibility and planned to leave strong groups of men well positioned in the high ground on the way, just in case. At first, there was no opposition. Behind Mahon's force travelled the wagons, crashing through the trackless bush, followed by herds of livestock. Boer Commandant de la Rey had arrived with around 2,000 men, and they joined General Sneeman's Boers around Mafeking, planning to defend the by now strategic location. After moving slowly for six hours, Mahon came across de la Rey's Boers, who were spread out in a semicircle between the relief column and the outskirts of Mafeking. Bloomer's column became heavily engaged at a farm, which was held by Boer riflemen, artillery and a machine gun, and he suffered some casualties, but... The Boers were overrun in a frontal charge by Plumer's men. The crucial point of the advance was reached when Delaray struck at the flanks of Mahon's force and ordered heavy shrapnel, shell and rifle fire aimed at these men. But Mahon was well versed by now in the Boer tactics and had placed his best troops on the flank, the Kimberley Mounted Corps under Lieutenant Colonel Peakman, who was in a rearguard position. When the Boers poured around the back of the column, they ran slap-bang into this unit who were literally waiting for the charge. Mahon is one of the British leaders of this war who really did understand the value of real intelligence and also who understood the landscape and how to move in it. He didn't do what the British leadership had done earlier, that is, bunch his men into a small group. As he says in his dispatches, I attribute the smallness of our casualties to our very wide front and loose formation. And it took the Canadians less than an hour of targeting the lager before the Boers withdrew. Inside the town, the booming of the artillery could be heard. Then all was quiet as the sun set. It was seven o'clock at night. The moon shone brightly when a major and eight troopers with ostrich plumes in their hats clattered into the market square. It was Major Carey Davies, the Johannesburg reformer and second-in-command of the Eightlander Regiment. 
Remember, the Eitlanders were the English speakers from the gold mining areas of Johannesburg who were so hated by the Boers and who had demanded the right to vote while forming militant mobs that heated up the political atmosphere and led at least partly to this war. So, for Davies, it was a personal vendetta and a bittersweet moment that he'd realised he'd secured the historic town of Mafeking by merely riding into it. Major Davies saw a passerby and climbed off his horse, saying they were the advance guard of the relief, but all he got was this offhand comment. Oh yes, I heard you were knocking about. And off the passerby went to draw his rations, leaving Major Davies staring after him in some bemusement. Slowly, though, word spread that the advance guard were indeed in the town, and the folk realised the siege had been lifted. Ragged cheers rang out, the crowd sang, Rule Britannia, and then the exhausted riders flung themselves down near the horses and went to sleep, and the townsfolk went back to bed as it was close to midnight. When Mahon's main force rumbled into town at 4am, there was no one to greet them. The moon had set, and it was still pitch dark when the convoy of men and wagons, along with horse artillery, rumbled into Market Square, unseen by the folk they'd come to save. Mahon had made good time between his departure from Barclay West on the Vaal, over 400 kilometres south, 12 days earlier, to arrive at this point, including the skirmishes they'd faced. The road had been stony desert, with few waterholes, but they'd arrived, and the moment would be relished by the Empire's poets, and scribes. Mahon's column itself was a mixed-up bunch of over 1,140 South African colonials, irregulars in other words, and the great majority were the Eitlanders from Johannesburg, who had spent some time trapped in Ladysmith before Buller managed to free them only the previous month. There were 200 men from Cecil John Rhodes's town Kimberley and 100 truly imperial troops from the Royal Horse Artillery. Interestingly, and because of the symbolism around Mafeking, the British had cleverly decided 100 other men were to be included from four regions of the UK, 25 from each, 25 from England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland. While this was a token gesture, it was clear what the British were saying. The empire was represented and was here to stay. Also in that column was Frank Rhodes, Cecil John Rhodes's brother who had planned the march with Mahon and was his intelligence officer. But the news of the relief of Muffy King was received with hysterical acclaim across the British world. Wilfred Blunt, a writer in the UK, said sarcastically, They are behaving as though they'd beaten Napoleon. But there had been a remarkable change for the British. After being crushed in various battles in South Africa, they were now clearly in the ascendancy, and the population back home, which had been constantly depressed by the bad news, now had something to celebrate. And it was then that to mafic, or to leap about in pure joy, was created, with English speakers across the world using this phrase. The Canadians had helped, the artillery was vital, the Australians were there represented. It was then that Mafeking meant in every sense relief for this empire, hysterical, euphoric relief from their nightmare. This tiny group of Boers, which had so severely tested the world's most powerful empire at the height of its power, were now being taught a lesson, or so everyone thought. For British citizens who watched Muffy King being saved, it was a clear-cut and happy ending, and the man who symbolised it all was Lord Baden-Powell, the snappily-dressed, moustachioed man of action who'd kept the naughty Boers out of Muffy King for 217 days.
Major Bailey, who was actually a war correspondent, wrote, It is good to be an Englishman. These foreigners start too quick and finish quicker. They are good men, but we are better, and have proved so for several hundred years. But this war was not about the position of a flag on a map, as the British were to discover in the coming two years when they had to fight a guerrilla war in Africa. This war, like many before and since, was about morale and the pure-blooded want to fight. It was also, for some, a war to the death, which is something that well-trained, highly mobile technical armies still battle with today. So the semi-starving townsfolk of King turned out the following day, Saturday, to cheer the formal march past by the relief column. Lord Baden-Powell took the salute, and this all happened to be taking place on Queen Victoria's birthday. As the bunting flapped in the breeze and the Queen's chocolate cake was handed around, no one noticed the crosses and the mounds in the cemetery, where nearly 500 black residents lay. We followed the diary of Sol Plyke until his writing stopped suddenly at the end of March. Remember, he had provided us with a unique view of a black man who'd been living in Mafeking during the siege and worked as a translator for the British. But his writing just ends in March suddenly, and it's not entirely clear why. Historians say it was in the latter phases of the siege that many townsfolk became listless from want of food and could hardly rouse enough energy to talk, let alone write. Others think it was linked to the fact that Lord Baden-Powell's attempt to force most blacks out of Mafeking to save food, which would have crossed the line and demoralised Plaki severely. We'll never know, but his voice was stilled in March. A relief fund of almost £30,000 was raised in England for the town, but not a cent was spent on the blacks, whose farms were gutted and looted and shops destroyed. They went back to their stut, the black township, where they continued to pay a price through the rest of this war. Baden-Powell founded the Boy Scout movement and became one of the most famous Englishmen alive after Lord Nelson. I visited Muffet King's museum recently, and although it's somewhat run down, in one corner you can find a block which commemorates the dead, including a line about the Black Watch. That was the unit of black soldiers set up by Baden-Powell, and which infuriated the Boers, as they wanted this to remain a war fought by and against whites. Back in the UK, the pent-up frustration the Anglo-Boer War had caused burst into the streets and scenes repeated in 1918 and then 1944 and 45, ecstatic in victory. At around 9.20pm on Friday the 18th of May 1900, a Reuters wire service message reached London. An excited footman at the mansion house was supposed to be the first person to catapult the news through the streets. The window blinds were raised in the mansion house to reveal the words... Muffet King is relieved, along with a sketch of Baden-Powell. As Rain Kruger writes in Goodbye Dolly Cray, the news spread like flames before a wind through the city. At the Lyceum, Madame Duse was interrupted and God Save the Queen spontaneously sung. At Covent Garden Opera House, where the Prince of Wales and the King of Sweden were taking in the second act of Longren, three cheers rang out and everyone burst into song. An explosion of happiness followed. People mafficked about across the country. The only people, apparently, who were hard at work the following day, Saturday, were the pickpockets who took advantage of the huge crowds milling about British towns. To maffic was now a verb, but maffickeng night was the inevitable climax of the late Victorian age, and in a single orgiastic moment, the age was upheaved.
Meanwhile, in the centre of South Africa, near the Vaal River, Lord Roberts and his army of 50,000 resumed his march to Pretoria on the 22nd of May, under the watchful eyes of those aboard his war balloons. Roberts was using these balloons as his eyes, tethered to a large wagon and moving along with the huge force, the sharp-eyed lookouts peering ahead and to the side and watching for attacks at the rear as they clung to their small baskets hundreds of feet up in the air. This method of observation was not new, but also predated the upcoming use of aeroplanes as spotters in the First World War. Winston Churchill, war correspondent with the Morning Post, was moved to write that the war balloon was compared to a pillar of cloud that led the hosts of Israel. That sort of purple prose was well received by his readers. Furthermore, Rudyard Kipling had written that rarely had war looked so democratic, at least if you were British. Over half of the 10,000 rank and file of the Imperial Yeomanry and City Imperial Volunteers raised after the chaos of Black Week at the end of 1899, over half of these were middle class. Trooper number 8008, for example, was the Honourable Sidney Peel, Barrister at Law. And driver Erskine Childers was actually Mr. Childers, Clerk of the House of Commons. Unlike many previous wars, where the working class and poor were thrown before invading armies, this one was stocked with soldiers who could read and write and who were connected very closely to the ruling class. The British middle class had grown during the Industrial Revolution, and now they turned out to fight. But, like their working class colleagues, they discovered that big things in war didn't matter as much as the little things if you are a foot soldier. For example, knowing which wood to use for the fire, how to steal a duck from a farm without being shot, and how to protect your boots, as well as how to sleep on freezing ground with a single blanket and survive. Some wood in South Africa, for example this one called tamboti, is actually poisonous when burned and causes a serious form of diarrhea. So it was late autumn on the Haarfeld in South Africa, and these troops would be sunburnt during the day, then face frost overnight as temperatures slipped close to freezing, while a frigid wind pushed the wind chill to below zero, and all the while having insufficient food and water. And it wasn't even winter yet. At each of the natural defensive lines, the British found extensive trenches, but no Boers. The five main rivers they crossed, the Fet, the Sant, the Valsh, the Ranosta, and the Great Val River all had trenches dug as though the plan was to fight. But Louis Boerter was retreating, and he would not commit suicide. Roberts wrote to Lord Lansdowne back at the war office that they slip away in the most extraordinary manner. Somehow, there was always a rear guard strong enough to hold off French's cavalry. Somehow, the Boers always saved even their wagons and heavy guns without paying the price in casualties. The mines of Johannesburg beckoned and Roberts was heading to Johannesburg, and then through that city to Pretoria, 40 kilometres north. The city of gold was a shell. Most people had fled, and only a handful of gold mines continued operating. A massive blast on the 24th of April at Begbie's Engineering Works, which I've described in a previous podcast, led to the expulsion of most English speakers, whom the Boers blamed for sabotaging the factory. It was turning out 2,000 rounds a day for the Boers' Krupp, Armstrong and Maxim guns until the blast. However, the cause of the explosion remains a mystery. At this moment, though, some amongst the Boers were debating whether or not to actually destroy the mines before Robert's army arrived, and that's why he was hurrying. The Transvaal Boer leadership was sharply divided, with President Paul Kruger and Jan Smuts supporting the idea of blowing up the mines, or at least the idea of using it as a threat. 
that would be enough, they were sure to persuade mine owners, shareholders and governments in Europe to put pressure on Great Britain to stop the assault on the Boer republics. This, of course, was completely optimistic thinking. But there was one Boer vehemently opposed to that idea, General Louis Boerter. He called the plan to destroy the mines barbaric and cowardly and warned Kruger he would summon his men from the front to come to the defense of Johannesburg if that was indeed the plan. Kruger gave his word that it wasn't. However, the tension in Johannesburg then was palpable. There were a handful of English speakers left, those who were skilled artisans and helping the Boer War effort, but there was also a fear that the black workers would rise up once the British rolled through. So Kruger had given his word, but the Transvaal Secretary, Rates, hadn't. And now he planned to do just that, to destroy the mines, and gathered together a rather motley crew of around 100 men, mostly Germans and Irishmen, under the direct command of a young Boer hothead called Antony Koch. The day after word reached Johannesburg that Roberts had resumed his march on the 23rd of May, Koch and his crew made their way to the famous Robinson gold mine. As so often happens, fate lent a hand. He arrived to find a load of gold ready to be loaded and removed, but thought it was being kept aside for Lord Roberts' arrival. He went to the mine manager's office and accused the manager, a Mr. Krauss, of selling out to the British. Mr. Krauss naturally inquired why Mr. Cock was wandering around his gold mine and ordered him arrested. The company police dealt with his desperadoes, and the mines were saved. Roberts and his army are now trudging north towards Johannesburg and Pretoria, where Boer citizens nervously await his arrival, while in the east, Buller has pushed through the Biggersburg Mountains near Ladysmith, and the Boers have retreated ahead of this smaller army of around 35,000. Mahon has secured Mafeking and also begun to move almost directly east, rolling up the small units of the Boers as he went, also heading towards Pretoria. The imperial propagandists were writing at length of how this war was moving to its end, and what awaited the heroes who were to return more than likely within a few weeks for their medals, ceremonies, and once more to be reunited with their loved ones. Christian de Vett, however, gives us a glimpse of what really awaited. In his book Three Years' War, it was at this point that he notes, Meanwhile, the two generals, Delaray and Louis Butter, were giving us all a splendid example of fortitude. Gazing into the future unmoved and facing it with clenched teeth, they prosecuted the war with invincible determination. So there we'll end with those words of warning. Next week the British take Johannesburg and Pretoria, while Buller continues to clear Natal of Boer commandos. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. Take a look at our website, abwarpodcast.com, and you can message me directly on Twitter, at Des Latham. Till next week, goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die oud Transvaal, daar waar my saar is.